Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, your co-host is David Robinson. David is a client of mine, and he is doing big things in the real estate syndication industry. I know you are going to enjoy today's show. Hey, guys, this is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, David Robinson. Today, our guest is Paul Shannon. Since 2018, Paul has invested heavily in real estate, completing dozens of rehabs on single-family and multifamily properties from fix and flip, to hold his cash flow rentals or selling turnkey. His most recent acquisition was a value-add 40-unit apartment building in Evansville that is currently wrapping up reposition. Along with being active in his business, Paul is a passive limited partner in over 1,400 multifamily units and industrial offerings around the country. So Paul, that's obviously a very brief bio. And we want to hear a little bit more about your experience in this space and what you've done to get to where you're at today, investing in over 1,400 multifamily units. But if you can, let's back up and let's just talk about how you got started in the business and give us a little bit of insight into what you're doing today. Sure. First off, David, thanks so much for having me here today. I'm I'm excited to be on the show. This is a podcast that I've listened to quite a bit. So to be a guest on it is kind of surreal and looking forward to sharing my experiences and, and talking with you today. I've always been somebody that was interested in early retirement and kind of having time freedom and the ability to control my destiny as far as where I spent my time. I wanted to work when I wanted to work. I wanted to spend time with my family when I wanted to spend time with my family and my friends. So I had a strategy going into my early 30s that I was going to try to save as much as possible. I was going to utilize the 4% rule. If you've heard of the Trinity study where you can withdraw 4% of your capital and basically live off that indefinitely using the 60% stocks, 40% bond split and I grinded through for quite a while and was successful in saving some, some decent money. Uh, but as I got closer to the finish line, I realized that my strategy was kind of flawed. If you look at, at bonds today, which would account for 40% of that portfolio, interest rates are so low right now that really you're kind of guaranteeing or locking yourself into a loss. With where we are with inflation today, if you're getting a 1.6% yield on a bond and inflation is running at 5%, well, your real return is negative. So you're in the hole there. If interest rates continue to stay the same, you're going to earn a pretty lousy yield. Interest rates rise because bonds move inversely in price to yields, then your bond values are going to go down. So there's where that guaranteed loss comes into play. And when you look at what bonds have done in a portfolio over the last 40 years, they've they've really balanced out stocks. They provided capital preservation. They provided income for investors, diversification away from the markets or a hedge against the markets. They've offered appreciation as interest rates have fallen. But in my view, that is an unlikely scenario to continue. Just because something has worked well in the past doesn't mean it's going to continue to work well in the future. So I felt as though I needed to kind of shift gears. And I'd always been interested in real estate investing. And I saw real estate investing as kind of a void that could fill the void that bonds have traditionally played in a portfolio. And oh, by the way, it's a good inflation hedge and it also offers positive leverage. So for all those reasons, I knew I was going to go all in. So I had to find a place to put that 40% of my capital. I was also a little bit disenfranchised with the corporate world and wanted to kind of take a chance on myself in something. And I saw real estate as sort of an easier business to get into 
from an entrepreneurial standpoint than many others, it's fairly simple. You know, improve top line sales. That's standard for the way you think about any corporate company, i.e. rents in this business. Reduce expenses to improve the bottom line, which in multifamily is net operating income. So I can get my arms around that. That's pretty easy to handle. Let's go ahead here. So in starting small, I got involved in single family homes and to basically allow for some opportunity for appreciation, I really latched onto the Burr method where you buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat, and really are able to continue to recycle that capital indefinitely and create cash flow along the way. So that was kind of my entry point into real estate. I did a few deals that were successful. And after kind of proof of concept, I went all in myself and left my W-2 job and away I went. All right. That's great. Just to give our listeners some context, roughly what time frame, maybe year, did you start investing in your first deal, your first real estate deal? 2018. So it hasn't been that long. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. So 2018, you invest in your first deal. And was this a bird deal right out the gate? Single family bird deal? The first deal I ever did was actually a duplex that was filled with tenants. It was an older home. It gave me some good experience in managing tenants and building you know, kind of a relationship as a property manager with them. I ran into some issues with this house and I was able to solve them. It helped me build some relationships with some contractors. So no, it wasn't a bird deal, but it catapulted me. You know, the, the law of the first deal is real. You can actually pull the trigger and take action. It's funny how things kind of snowball from there. So shortly after that was my first bird deal where I bought a single family property at auction. I think I paid 55,000 for it, put about 30,000 into it, refinanced it for 145,000. So I was able to get all my capital back out and some at a 75% LTV. And that was the confidence boost that I needed to say, hey, you can do this, obviously. It wasn't perfect. In fact, it was very imperfect. But the lessons learned you know, were awesome. And coming out of the back end of that deal, successful on the financial side of things, I just knew I wanted to keep going. So even though things didn't go perfect, it was time to continue on. Well, and you mentioned this concept. So I think a lot of listeners are familiar with the Burr concept, buy, renovate, rehab, rent, and repeat, right? But not everybody may be familiar with this concept of recycling capital indefinitely. So maybe just speak to that real quick. And then I'd like to push us forward and talk a little bit about what you're doing today and investing as a limited partner. Yeah. So basically, as an example, let's say you buy a property for $50,000, simple math that needs some work. So you put in $25,000. At that point, you're into it for $75,000, whether that's your money or other people's money. Hopefully, you've improved the property enough where now it's going to be worth, let's say, $100,000. So you go to a bank, you present them the deal, and you want to get a 75% loan to value. So you're going to need to leave 25% in the deal. 25% of $100,000 is the equity, essentially, that you've created through the rehab process. So you're going to get that $75,000 that you put into the deal back. You're going to then have the equity you created as the down payment for the property moving forward with the bank. And then you're going to cash flow from there. So you're going to get that money back and you're going to do it again. And what I found is that that process was a little too slow for me. When you do refinance and you take out a loan with the bank, your cash flow takes a little bit of a hit. So I look to get $100 to $200 a door on these properties. But if you're rehabbing a property, it could take three months. So if you can do a couple of those at a time, maybe you can get eight done a year. Maybe you can do more if you have the business and the efficiencies in place to really roll with that. But $100 a door times eight is $800. That's not going to make you rich overnight. So I wanted to get into multifamily because I saw the ability, one, to drive valuations through you know improving the property, whether that's through raising rents via rehabbing units and making them nicer units to live in, adding amenities, adding a 
washroom where you can do laundry, or you know you have another component to multifamily where you can actually reduce expenses too. So going back to the business conversation of how to operate it like a business, maybe you can implement rubs and bill back for utilities. Maybe you can charge for pet rent. That's more on the income side, I should say. But maybe there's a property manager in place where you know you could add some efficiencies by putting somebody on site versus hiring a third party. Maybe you can negotiate contracts with vendors. So these are just all examples of how you can drive the bottom line, which is net operating income, to improve the valuation of the property. Whereas with single family homes, you're really reliant on market comps, what other properties are selling for around your property. This with multifamily, you can control your own destiny, which I really enjoyed. And you can implement this burst strategy similar to how you would with a single family, but you got to look for deeper value add properties. But if you can take Basically, if your listeners maybe are familiar with the yield on cost metric, it's one that we really look closely at when we evaluate these multifamily properties. If the in-place cap rate in a market is, let's say, 6%, and you may buy a property with an in-place NOI of where you know equates to about a 4-cap, but if you can turn that property into an 8-cap and the market is a 6-cap, you've just created a 200 basis point spread. That's a developmental spread. And your yield on cost, it basically takes into account your pro forma NOI divided by the total project cost. So what you pay for the property plus the CapEx. And if you can implement those kind of financials into your model, you can see, okay, this deal is actually worth it. Everything's called a value add today, it seems, in multifamily. Is there really value there? So that's one of my favorite metrics to look at to understand if there really is value. And if that developmental spread, the bigger it is, the better the value that you can add to the property. If you do your math and you figure out that there's only a 25 basis point spread between the in-place cap rate and what your cap rate will be after the project's complete, and you have to inject a million dollars into the property, well, it might not be worth your time to do that. There's really not much value you're adding to the property. You might be fixing it up but it's not going to equate to a good deal for you as the investor. I think this is a great example of someone who's a student of the market and is looking to deploy funds as a limited partner. And maybe just give us a sense of what your investing looks like today. Obviously, you started out in the single family space. You wanted some scale. You like the idea of being able to have more control over the asset and being able to have an impact on the NOI. But ultimately, what does your business look like today as you decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to move into this multifamily space. So the most recent project I did was a 40-unit value-add property down in Evansville, Indiana. It was a pretty heavy lift and met a lot of the criteria and the metrics we just discussed. And we're in the middle of doing a cost segregation study and ultimately we'll refinance the property. I'm looking for more stuff like that on the active side. I feel like there's an opportunity in these older assets, call it you know C-class, but if you can find them in the right locations and areas that have gentrified or are gentrifying, you're kind of on the edge. That's really what we want from a location standpoint. So I'd say about half my real estate investments are really being directed towards that and funneled towards that. I've pretty much done this with all my own equity at this point, but you reach a certain ceiling in real estate where you can only do so much. And then I've realized also that I've got some certain skill sets that are valuable to others. And then I've got some deficiencies in my skill sets where if I partner with the right people, I can kind of take what they're good at, plug it into a team type atmosphere, and then hopefully scale one plus one can equal three essentially. So that's what I'm excited about on the active side. And I think there's for some personal reasons, for tax reasons, there's reasons to be in the game on the active side. But I look at where I'm concentrated geographically, and it's the Rust Belt, essentially. I'm in Indianapolis. I go down into Evansville. A lot of the Midwest is similar in what you see from a product class or product type. So I want a geographic diversification. And when COVID came about, I saw the work from home trend kind of picking up. I saw the migration from 
areas like New York, New England, California into Texas and in the South. And I wanted to participate, but I obviously didn't have a team in those areas. So I thought, well, hey, if I can't actively participate in these markets easily, I certainly can evaluate other sponsors, find out what others that are doing in the business well, and network with other individuals that are LPs and find out their experiences with different sponsors, and then diversify that way, you know, and get that kind of mailbox money going where you've got preferred returns and you're getting paid to hang on to the asset. But you're participating more on the upside for a guy like me in the Midwest, it's more of a cash flow market. You know, I really need to look for if I want appreciation, these value add deals where I can drive the value of the property up through renovations. Whereas maybe in the South, where cap rates are compressing a little bit faster, where you've got higher occupancy, more demand, all these things relate to valuations kind of driving themselves. The operator has to be good still. But as long as they stick to the plan, the demographics and the fundamentals are there to make that property worth more as rents rise over time. Yeah, that's a great summary of what's happening in the market today. You have these high growth markets that are really relying on population growth, job growth. And then you have sort of this you know, middle United States, the Rust Belt, that is relying just on the steady income cash flow mentality, but you can still achieve some of that upside potential through the value add component, which is what you're looking for. So the roughly 1400 multifamily units, I know some of that's industrial as well, but the 1400 units that you've invested in, just to give us a sense, where are those located? Is that all in the Midwest markets? Yeah. Just give us a sense of where those are located. Yeah. None of them are actually in the Midwest because I wanted that geographic diversification. I wanted diversification away from myself as an operator and I wanted to be in these hotter markets. So I've got assets uh, that I'm participating in, in Phoenix, Tucson, San Antonio, Dallas, Tampa, Raleigh, Greenville, South Carolina. These are all places that I want to retire to. So it's not hard for me to see why people are moving there. (laughs) Well, this is great. I think with your experience of investing as an LP, obviously now you're moving more into the active side of things and really focused on your local market, your backyard of the Midwest, but you're also hedging yourself against what's happening in your local market and investing in in those high growth markets. Maybe talk to us a little bit about these deals that you've invested in and the process that you've gone through to vet market operator and the deal. Do you have any type of framework that you're using to vet those deals? Is it more about relationships? How does that work for you? I think it's a little bit about both relationships, trusting the sponsor and then vetting the deals. You know, once you have that relationship built with the sponsor, as the deal flow continues to come to you as an LP, you kind of already have an idea of what type of deal it's going to look like. You've had conversations about what the criteria is. So it becomes easier to to check off or give the green light on an investment. It's that first deal that's probably a little bit tough and what I think people get a little bit hung up on, whether it's their first investment as an LP or maybe they've done LP investments in the past, but this is their first deal with some, some particular sponsor. I'll give a plug to a group called Left Field Investors, I believe you've had uh, Jim Pfeiffer on the show before. Jim founded it with a few other individuals. And it's a group of LP investors that came together to basically vet operators, to understand who they're investing with, other people's experiences, almost in a word of, word of mouth fashion. And it's not just related to multifamily. It's industrial. They talk about ATMs. You can invest in Broadway Place syndications. They sometimes have syndicators come on and talk about kind of their strategy, what they look at, what's going on in their local markets. But it's a great way to kind of network, much like a lot of syndicators network with each other. These are LPs that are networking with each other. They have a deal analyzer that they can kind of plug metrics in from pro formas that are received by operators and kind of 
it gives a, a green light or a kind of a caution light as to whether they should proceed with a deal. And the caution light really just says, hey, this is something you may want to ask about when you talk to the sponsor. This may be a question that you want to bring up when you're asking about an individual deal or asset. So I use that and I like that group a lot. Is that like a paid networking group? How would one get involved in something like that? Is it paid or is it just brought together with a group of people that are like-minded? I think you can get involved there for no money at all. They have a monthly meetup. That's a Zoom meeting. I think they initially decided to just have a core group of people that were going to meet locally. And then when COVID happened, they realized they couldn't do that. So they expanded. And that's really when things took off for them, ironically. But then there is a paid subscription model as well that you can get access to a lot of their you know, underwriting models, a lot of their other data sets and resources that they have, which is great as well. But for me, I'm underwriting deals more of like how a GP would underwrite deals. I'm going to brokers, I'm getting funds sent to me, I'm getting rent rolls and T12s, and I'm using underwriting models that a syndicator would use. So I kind of see it from that angle as well, which I think really helps me kind of snuff out things and, and pull through the weeds a little bit, if you will. Okay, hey, you know, these rent projections, the pro forma, you know, the math is one thing. Math doesn't lie, but you can kind of spin math in a way that benefits the storyteller. So that's where I like to kind of look to see, okay, we've talked about rent comps. Let me go into apartments.com and check these properties out. Do I really think that we can push rents based on what they're telling me here? Is there really value here? Are we adding a dog park? Are we painting the common areas and the clubhouse? And then we're going to raise rents by 10%. To me, there's no value there. So there's got to be some purpose behind the value add and making it a better place for the residents to live. So that's kind of what I look at a little bit more. And then from a market perspective, we kind of talked about that. I mean, it's really all about the demographics and what's happening on a macro basis across the country with migration to the South and, and jobs being created down there and Florida and Texas and, and landlord-friendly states and such. So all those things come into play. And you mentioned early in our conversation, the metric yield on cost and how you use that heavily. Is there any other metrics that you can look at a sponsor's deal package at a high level and quickly check off boxes that would say, hey, I want to look into this further or no, this isn't a deal for me. Is there anything that any of those quick tip metrics that would be helpful to our listeners? Well, you get the big three that are very popular to be advertised and the uh, equity multiple, the IRR and the cash on cash return. You see that on every single pro forma that's out there and every single offering. One that I really like to hone in on and probably the first thing I look at is the break-even analysis. How low can we drop occupancy to essentially reach a point where we're going to hit the red? And if it's pushing higher than 80%, I get a little jittery. I like to see deals that are pretty comfortable where if there's a black swan event like COVID or something else that happens just that's localized to the property or the market, it can absorb you know, a punch to the ribs and be okay. So ideally, I want to see break-even occupancy around somewhere in the low 70s if possible, even lower. The lower, the better. The better the property cash flows, the lower that number is going to be. I also look at IRR partitioning on the front end. So this is essentially a look at what percent of the deal is reliant on the cash flow from operations during the whole period versus the sale price at the end, the exit. So if you have a deal that has, let's say it's a 55% IRR based on the cash flow, 45% on the sale, which is an assumption that happens five or seven years down the road based on many numerous inputs, interest rates, cap rate, et cetera, et cetera, demand, rent growth. In that scenario, you've got a pretty safe deal because the cash flow is really what's driving the deal's returns. Whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you have a deal that's really reliant on a disposition at a high price 
and it's really kind of thin on the cash flow, you might see an IRR partition value of 20% cash flow and 80% IRR, in which case that's kind of a write-off for me. Like that's more of a development deal ground up. And if you want that sort of risk profile in your portfolio, then great. Maybe I do for a corner of mine, but for the bulk of my real estate investment, I want cash flowing safer assets. Yeah. Those are great tips and love those two metrics. And thanks for breaking that down for us. Well, look, Paul, we got to start winding down here a little bit. But before we do, I've got a few final questions I want to ask you. The first is, obviously, you have this background and getting into the real estate space as a hedge or an alternative to your stock and bond investing. You saw that the bond investing was a little bit of a flawed strategy for you. And so you dove into real estate. You saw the advantages of investing in real estate and the benefits. And you went ahead and started in single family and ultimately realized, hey, I want more scale and I want more control over the outcome by driving NOI. So you move into multifamily. And then you've had a tremendous amount of experience on the limited partner side and investing in deals and now really starting to be more active on the GP side of things. What's the number one thing that you would say has contributed to your success at this point in your multifamily investing? I would say, honestly, it's the support of my wife, my family. If I didn't have that, then I would be chained to my W-2 job and you know, kind of grinding it out and just being safe. That's the bird in the hand. So the only thing holding me back before I left was me because I had that support and, and she was all in on me and said, you know what? You're not happy. Do what is going to make you happy. And I believe you can get it done. So that may not be the technical answer that you may want to hear, but that's the Love qualitative it. stuff that really gets, gets the job done for me. So if that wasn't there, it wouldn't have happened. Love that. And speaking to those of our listeners that are in that place where they're really contemplating exiting a corporate career, W-2 role, and pushing themselves into the multifamily space, any advice for those listeners that are looking to, you know, exploring that possibility? I was there for a long time and I had analysis paralysis for quite a long time. If I had left what I was doing sooner and gotten involved with what I'm doing today, I don't know where I would be, but it would certainly be farther ahead than where I'm at right now. So I was always looking at things from the angle of here's the worst thing that could happen and it's likely to happen. Even though subconsciously, that's kind of, I guess, what was in my head, but I knew that that wasn't probably what was going to happen, but I was too scared to take the chance. When I started thinking about what could go right versus what is going to go wrong, my mindset shifted and it confidence thing, honestly. And from there, it was the way I went. But I would just say, what I didn't do was take action soon enough. And that is what you hear a lot in real estate, but it's so true. So I would say for anybody that's looking, you know, read some books, get educated, protect the downside, you know, talk to whoever you need to talk to about protecting your principal and mitigating risk. But at some point, there's risk in everything you do in life. And there's risk in real estate investing, tear the bandaid off and get ready because you know, you're going to take some jabs. But that's where the real learning happens. You can read 100,000 books, but you're never going to get real street experience until you get started. So do it. Yeah. Great advice. Last question I've got for you before we sign off is, as you're starting to move into the active investor side of things, the general partnership, the sponsorship side of multifamily, here we are in the market cycle where we're at. There's a lot of debate about where we're at and what the future holds, but how are you preparing for a potential downturn in the future? Boy, that's a great question. I'm preparing for any scenario that comes, really. Why I've really liked real estate in the scenario or the market that we're in right now is you 
heard a lot about inflation and where we're headed. And is it transitory? Is it not transitory? Is it here to stay? I believe it's the latter. I think it's going to be elevated from where we've seen it over the last 10 to 20 years. And with that, real estate is a great play because rents typically rise with inflation and home values. And right now, home values have really gone up quite a bit and rents have not quite caught up. So there's still room to grow rent on the top line. So I really do like real estate. I think to be careful, you have to kind of anticipate some sort of interest rate hike from here though. With inflation, if it gets to be sustained, you're going to have interest rates rise. And with that, cap rates could potentially follow. They're not 100% correlated, but they certainly are correlated. So with that, I look at deals. I look at sensitivity analysis. I look at reversion cap rates from the sponsors. And I underwrite that way myself. And you have to be aggressive in in this marketplace to get deals, but you can't completely eliminate the downside risk. You can't not look at a 50 basis point reversion cap rate. You can't anticipate 4 to 5% rent growth consistently year after year for five or six years, at least not in my market. So, you know, when I see pro formas like that, I get a little bit turned off. Or if I do, I start inputting my own metrics and my own assumptions to see where, you know, maybe we can make this deal work given my risk tolerance, it's all about risk-adjusted returns. So you can push the needle on some deals and on others, you need to play a little bit more defense to balance things out a little bit. Great perspective. Well, Paul, this has been an honor to have you on the show. I appreciate you sharing a little bit about your background and what your outlook is on the market today, sharing some insight with our listeners about how you're underwriting and evaluating deals from a limited partner perspective. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and learn more about what you have going on? Yeah, absolutely, David. It's been a pleasure. It's been, it's been awesome to be here. Thank you very much. There's two ways. Best ways to get in touch with me are through my website, redhawkinvesting.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there too. We'll have that info in the show notes. Again, Paul, thank you for coming on the show today. And we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.